Phone lines are open. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Phone lines are wide open. 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-348-7884. Any question of any kind, if it's appropriate for Christian radio, if it touches on any subjects we ever touch on on the line of fire, does anything right could at least give an effort to being helpful to you? Give us a call, 866-34-TRUTH. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. This is the day of the week. It almost feels like we're cheating because we don't have to prepare for the broadcast as much and put things together that we're going to talk about on the air because we just answer your questions and have fun doing it. So let's uh, let's get right to it. We'll start in Salt Lake City, Utah. Russ, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. It's uh, great to talk to you. I just have a, a question for the last, uh, I've served the Lord for uh, 46 years, and there is one thing that I have never um heard anybody speak on and that is is that if you read through the book of revelation you go through the seals you go through the trumpets you go through the bowls of judgment Mm -hmm. upon the earth and then supposedly christ will come back and we will reign and rule with christ for a thousand years Mm -hmm. my question is after reading the amount of destruction during the uh, all of those, what are we really coming back to? Right. Great question, Russ. And actually, that was the last portion of Scripture that I read before I went to sleep last night. So in Revelation 16, 17, 18, 19, with the bowls of wrath being poured out and the Lord returning, remember that this is apocalyptic language. Remember that this is visionary language. That, that Satan is described as, as a dragon with, with seven, seven heads, for example. That even the depiction of Jesus in Revelation 1, the visionary depiction, has a sword coming out of his mouth. So there's no question that there will be great shaking and upheaval on the earth. There's no question about that. But it's, it's not going to be literally the way you're reading it there. I was thinking of that very thing, that if, if you take it all as literal as opposed to apocalyptic visionary language, then pretty much the whole world is wiped out. Every human being is wiped out. There's, there's nobody left. But it's not meant to be read like that. These are pictures. These are symbols of intense destruction, shaking. Much of it could have even applied to things uh, 1,900 years earlier for the recipients getting the book and, and God's judgment on Rome and things like that. But this is typical literature. If, if you read Psalm 18, when David talks about the Lord delivering him, you would get the picture that the whole earth was literally shaking as God came down and delivered David from his enemies. So that too is, is poetic figures. Uh, th- those are poetic figures. But, but the book of Revelation is, is apocalyptic literature. It's a particular genre. It's written a certain way. People would understand in the ancient world the meaning of it. Now, we know, according to 2 Peter 3, 
that there will be a final renovation of the heavens and the earth. And that we would understand to be after the millennial kingdom, if, if we're rightly understanding future events. So there will be a final re- renovation. But uh, Zechariah 14 talks about the survivors of the nations that attacked Jerusalem. Uh, the, the passage about Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 talks about a massive cleanup after that because of all the, the dead. And so there's going to be some kind of cleanup for sure. But the whole earth will not be completely wiped out. That's, that's apocalyptic language, and it needs to be understood and interpreted accordingly. It's signs and symbols. All right? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm uh, being retired military. I was in, uh, in nuclear weapons for a number of years, and so I've, uh, we have watched a lot of movies on the different destructions and everything. And I just got thinking whenever you read all of that stuff and you see the destruction, you see the destruction that was in the past. Um, you know, I was just wondering, is, you know... Yeah, again, the really key thing is to, to read it, right, to read it as apocalyptic visionary literature with symbols and types rather than literal military literature. Also, uh, Russ, take a look at Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. That gives another picture of a final war. And, and there's a massive, as I said, uh, rebuilding, cleaning up after that. Even if you look in Zechariah 12, beginning verse 10 to the end of the chapter, the repentance in Israel at the end is going to be massive, leading to cleansing in the 13th chapter. So there's going to be some time of cleaning things up and restoration. And uh, there's going to be a lot of time to do it because it's a thousand-year reign. Hey, Russ, thanks, thanks for the question. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to California. David, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Ron. How are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. Wonderful. So uh, really quick, my question is, who's going to be here on Earth during the millennial reign. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend a couple of months back, and it just came to my mind today that he was saying that he does believe there are going to be unbelievers here on Earth during Christ's reign for the thousand years, and I personally don't understand that, especially considering um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where it says when he returns, he's going to take vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so, yeah, and he was saying similar things to like how we as believers are going to be glorified with him, right? Because we will see him right. as he is. But there's also there's going to be other people there that are unbelievable. I'm just trying to reconcile that. I don't understand. Right. So, yeah, yeah. So it, it uh, comes to the heels of the last call as well. You can read Revelation yeah. 19 and have the impression that every human being that was not among the people of God will be wiped out when the Lord returns. You could have that impression. And as you mentioned in Second Thessalonians 1, that'll come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that don't know God and that, that um, do not obey the gospel. So the question is, will there be unbelievers on the earth during the millennial kingdom or who will populate the millennial kingdom? Well, we see clearly from Revelation 20, if we understand this to be prophecy of what will unfold, we see clearly that at the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be mass rebellion. So it's obviously not the saints. We're glorified we're with the Lord. There'll be mass rebellion. Uh, Satan will be loosed, and there will be 
there will be destruction. Uh, he will lead people in a revolt against God, and they will be destroyed. You say, well, what's the purpose of the millennial kingdom? Well, n- numbers of purposes. But one, I believe, is that God will vindicate himself before the world and the entire angelic realm. Because there's always the accusation, well, if, if, if the world was not so unjust, I could believe him. If there wasn't so much suffering, I could believe him. If, if the wicked were punished, I could believe him. Well, in the millennial kingdom, there will be a perfect reign from the Lord. Justice will be carried out. There will be no war. The glory, uh, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And yet still people will rebel. So that will demonstrate the sinfulness of human nature and the righteousness of God. But who is it that populates the earth? Zechariah 14 tells us that the survivors of those who attacked Jerusalem, the survivors of the nations that attacked Jerusalem, will come up to worship the Lord of hosts annually. The impression that you get is that there are some leading the way in attacking God's people, leading the way in attacking Jerusalem, leading the way in wickedness and rebellion against God, and they will be destroyed when the Lord returns. But there will be others who are non-believers but were not in that state of hostility, and they will now survive and multiply and grow in the millennial kingdom. And that's why the end of the book of Isaiah 65, 66, give pictures of things in the millennial kingdom which speak of the glory of the Lord, but it's not a perfect world. People can still sin, people can still die, but there'll be supernaturally elongated lives. The, the open presence of God will discourage sin. There'll be punishment of wickedness, and therefore it'll be an extraordinary time. But again, Zechariah 14 gives the key the survivors of the nations that attack Jerusalem will populate the millennial kingdom. Uh, and again, this is all future. This is as, as best as we understand it from this vantage point. Others will have different perspectives, and we don't divide over that. Uh, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Josh in Spokane, Washington. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you very much. I feel welcome, sir. Um, my question is, Dr. Brown, uh, I was reading Romans chapter 7, and I was just, as I was reading the first opening uh, verses, Paul is, you know, talk, having the... Uh, having kind of the conversation with himself about how the law is now dead, and then we are now made alive in Christ, and he gives the imagery of... Well, the, the law's not dead. We, yeah, we, we died. The law mm-hmm. didn't die. We died. Sorry, sorry. Well, he gives, yeah. well, he gives the imagery, right, where, where, it's the husband, where it's the husband and the wife, and the husband dies, and then right, right. she gets to marry... Yeah, that's, that's what I was talking about. Exactly. Right? And so, yeah. um, would, would you, like, if... And I was just... It just came to me that this would be, I've never talked to someone about it um, who made this argument, but what would you say to a person who used this portion of Scripture uh, as an argument for replacement theology? Right, so the question would be, is Paul speaking of a new system that replaces the old? So that the old right. system was the law, the Torah, the new system is, is the Holy Spirit and the new covenant— and you had an old people, and you had a new people. So my first response would be, even if that was true, that doesn't prove replacement theology, because Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, God says he'll make a new covenant with whom? With the house of Israel and Judah. 
not like the Sinai covenant, meaning that one was external. This one instead will be written on our hearts and will come with complete forgiveness of sins. So even if it was talking about a new system, it's not talking about a new people. There's no replacing of the people in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. There's a replacing of the Sinai covenant with the new and better covenant. So it's not a replacing of the people. That's my first response. The second is that we are standing in relationship with the same God of Israel just by the spirit as opposed to by the letter. That's what's changed. But God's standards, God's holiness, God's call remain the same. And then I tell people, keep reading until you get to the end of Romans 11, where Paul emphatically spells out that the gifts and calling yep. of God are irrevocable and God will keep his promises. A great question. That's how I'd respond. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, check out my latest article, Saul Alinsky and the BLM Movement. Saul Alinsky, famous for Rules for Radicals. It's an eye-opener. You'll read it and think, ah, ah, now I get it. So we shout from the rooftops that black lives do matter, and we shout from the rooftops we separate from the BLM Movement. This will give you further fuel for your fire, further ammunition. You can read it at stream.org. You can read it at askdrbrown.org. And friends, if you appreciate the free resources that we put out by the day, normally five articles a week and then five radio broadcasts and then separate videos and other live streams, if you're blessed by that, stand with us, pray for us, share these resources with your friends, spread the word, and you can click on the Donate button on the Ask Dr. Brown Facebook page, to support us, any gift of any size goes a long way. You can click on the dollar sign in the YouTube chat, right beneath the YouTube chat, and help. Or you go to our website, askdrbrown.org, click donate. Hey, uh, some major news. You can now watch the Line of Fire broadcast, a select show from each week. If you have DISH TV, uh, channel 219, Saturday nights at 10 on America's Voice. Uh, and we're also on the Pluto Network, which is another large, whatever is it, satellite? I don't, I don't even know how you describe that, uh, reaching millions of homes. I'm not sure what the channel is, but Saturday night, 10 o'clock, America's Voice is, is the name of the channel. I know it's number 219 on DISH. So tell your friends, and we're, we're doing our best on the Saturday show to really get a show that that is a faith answer to the political, cultural scene. So intersecting faith and politics. All right. 866-34-TRUTH, the number to call. Let's go to Michigan. Adrian, welcome to the line of fire. Dr. Brown, how are you? Doing very well, thank you. Good. First off, I want to say it's an honor talking with you. I truly enjoy your ministry, and thank you for all that you do. You are very welcome. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I wanted to know, um, you know, this thing is growing like, like wildfire dealing with the Hebrew Israelites. And um, I've had opportunities to engage with them, and uh, it's definitely obvious that they are not, they are butchering up Scripture to support the doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, and, and one thing I do want to ask, though, is, you know, we know that their doctrine is false, but I'm, I've been trying to pinpoint, you know, 
is there any evidence or not about them being, you know, the Jews of Israel? And I wanted to know if you maybe had any information on that. Yeah. Um, number one, the big issues with black Hebrew Israelites, you want to major on what Scripture says and what they believe. I was just looking at Twitter the other day, and a gentleman said, hey, I was very heavily into that group. I was part of that cult, but I came out of it after listening to one of the elders from the BHI movement uh, debate, Dr. James White. And he said a bunch of others left after that. So when the error was exposed by Dr. White, the scriptural theological error, that was, that was eye-opening and troubling. All right, here is the fact. The fact is that there are some black Jews. That is a fact. Uh, it is also a fact that the majority of blacks worldwide do not descend from the people of Israel. But there are some who do, uh, just like there are many white Jews, Asian Jews, Indian Jews, Hispanic Jews. So as Jews have been scattered around the world and people have converted and become part of the larger Jewish family, then the appearance and things like that has changed. And there are various traditions. There's the claim by by Ethiopian Jews that they go back to to the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon having a sexual union. Uh, others say as as the the twelve tribes were scattered into different parts of the world, that's how some ended up in Africa. So you have say the Lemba tribe from Zimbabwe and some different tribes in Nigeria. Yeah. So as it's been explained to me, sir, that initially you had legitimate black Jews coming over from Africa through the slave trade, who continued to hold on to various Jewish traditions and even launched synagogues and things like that, you know, 1800s, early 1900s, whatever the exact chronology was. And then out of that grew a movement that all blacks were Jews, so that all blacks were, they would say, Israelites. Um, so there is zero truth to the charts they put up. And, you know, if you're from this country or this tribe, that's complete myth, complete mythology, with no support for it, and DNA tests would not verify it either. But there are some who have a legitimate connection. For example, the Lemba tribe, they have uh, shown in, in DNA tests that they have what would be called the priestly chromosome, that you can trace people back, say, Jews with the name Cohen. Many of them that be, is because they are of priestly descent. Cohen means Kohen, and they have maintained that genetic marker through the centuries that traces back to uh, you know 1500 or 3500 years ago in the Middle East and presumably goes back to Aaron. Well, that's that. Uh, so you have many many white Jews in America. That's their descent. That's their lineage, and it's preserved not just in their name, but DNA confirms it. Well, the same with the Lemba tribe in Zimbabwe. That, that they also have tested this. So some of them, even though we've got white and black, go back to a common Middle Eastern origin descending from Aaron. Um, if you go to karm.org, C-A-R-M, karm.org, and look up the material there on black Hebrew Israelites or check uh, vocab Malone has written on this, uh, they'll give you more data as well. Or any, any major book about uh, Jewish... G, uh, Jewish genes, uh, DNA testing, and things like that, uh, that will give you further insight that will help refute what they're saying, recognize the small sliver of truth, and, and reject the rest. And then pray for them, you know, 
uh, because they don't yeah. know the Lord and they're not experiencing his goodness and love. Therefore, something serious is missing. You're right. So uh, let me ask you this, Dr. Brown. Would you say, uh, do, you, do you know of a book that you can refer me to? Or Yeah, well, uh, there, there are a few books that I have read on this subject and that I ordered. I'm just trying to think of, of the... Um, let me just see one second here. Yeah, maybe this is the, the, the most accessible. John Entine, E-N-T-I-N-E, uh, Abraham's Children, Race, Identity, and the DNA of the Chosen People. There are a couple of others uh, that, that I've read as well that are a little bit more technical, uh, but this one is very readable. Abraham's Children, Race, Identity, and the DNA of the Chosen People. John Entine, E-N-T-I-N-E. Hey, thank you for asking and keep praying for these folks. Jesus died for them, same as he died for each of us. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. An anonymous caller from Oklahoma. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thanks so much for reaching out to us. Thank you, sir. I, I appreciate you a lot, Dr. Brown. I've read a lot of your books, and you've helped me deal with a lot of things. And so um, my question, I'm 25 years old, and I've been dealing for about the last five years um, a struggle with uh, both pornography and sexual sin. Um, it's led me to, to losing my virginity when I was 21 years old and studying not just through the lens of scriptures, but a lot of other theological books that deal with the issue of sexual sin, specifically porn. I have mm-hmm. seen and I understand the the effects it's beginning to have on my mind, and I feel like I've been, you know, almost corrupted from the inside mm-hmm. out in, in certain ways. And I still study the Bible. I, I do love Christ, but just like Hebrews 12 tells us to strip off every weight and sin, um, that's my goal. It's not just to... I want to be set free, and I find myself giving in to the slightest of temptations because I don't even believe that's possible for me anymore. And I just want to know, like, what can I do to just even believe that I'm capable through Christ of overcoming this? And and I think another big question for me, and I'll shut up here, but um, I do see the damage it's caused on my mind and the way that I think and the way that I feel about women and certain things. And I want to be redeemed. I want to be healed. I want my mind and my heart to be healed. And I, I honestly don't know how to go about um, in any of this, Dr. Brown. Yeah. First, I'm so sorry to hear about the struggles. I want you to know, though, that you are absolutely not alone in struggling with sexual sin and pornography. There's a reason the Bible talks about it so much. There's a reason that major leaders fell prey to it and still do to this day. These are very serious temptations, and now with porn being available the way it is, it, it's, it, it's on epidemic levels through our country and bringing tremendous destruction. But here's the good news. It bothers you. You want to change. Why? Because you're such a good person or because God's at work in you? It's because God's at work in you. If God was not at work in you, you would fully embrace this. You would just go deeper and deeper in your descent, or you wouldn't even be looking to change. The reason you're looking to change is because God has not forsaken you. God is still at work inside of you, and that's why this bothers you. But obviously, more of the same is only going to produce more of the same. In other words, just getting up every day and saying, okay, I'm I'm going to do better today than I did yesterday, that's not going to work. Uh, Something more has to happen. So so two things. Uh, It may be that you really need some solid godly counseling where people spend time with you 
and then get you with rigorous accountability where you would have to make really, really serious efforts to sin because you'll have God's grace at work and then you'll have some real serious accountability. The other thing is, um, one of the best books that I've seen on this that helped a lot of people, just for a single book, I just pulled it up when you called, At the Altar of Sexual Idolatry, Steve Gallagher, G-A-L-L-A-G-E-R. We've got a break coming up. Friends, would you pray for this caller? God knows his name and who he is, that he would experience tremendous breakthrough in the days ahead. Again, the book, At the Altar of Sexual Idolatry. If you haven't gotten it, read it. Steve Gallagher. And then check out his ministry. Search for Steve Gallagher online, Sexual Sin. They actually have some programs, very serious programs, that can help people who are addicted. Here's the good news. Millions have been set free. They were right where you were, and they have been set free. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us on The Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. We actually have a couple phone lines open right now. 866-348-7884. Anything that we can help you with, any subject that's appropriate for Christian radio, Go for it. 866-34-TRUTH. We go right to the phones, starting in Florida with Chuck. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, hello, Dr. Brown. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, my wife and I have been supporting a ministry for several years, and uh, every once in a while they do something that we're not real sure about, but here recently we've, uh, we've noticed that they've got involved in something called Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. They've got a a coaching certificate, and then supposedly it's used as a discipleship tool for mentoring 20-something. So I've I've looked at some of the stuff online, and some of the stuff looks a little bit disturbing, but I didn't know much about it. I was wondering if you know anything about that. Yeah, what is it that looked disturbing to you? Well, I don't know. I mean, get too much into all this psychotherapy and psychology and Got everything. It. I mean, all right. So lot, let me let me tell you. And stuff yeah, are, let me tell you what I know. So Enneagram is basically a personality test. You answer certain questions, and it kind of lays out here are your strongest characteristics and things like that. Now, I had not heard of it, but when I was with some believing friends in another country one time, they very enthusiastically brought it up and asked if I had done it, taken the test. I said, no. So I got online. It was a small fee to do this and take the full test. Yeah, I'm curious to see what it comes up with. And it kind of came up with what I already knew. In other words, the the character strengths or strengths of my calling that I knew. But I had previously done this many years ago. I was asked to do a Clifton Strength Finders test with Gallup and have all of our leaders on our leadership team do it. And and that helped gain understanding in terms of what strengths and weaknesses were. So I looked at it completely innocently, just like another test that gave you insight. So, you know, for me, for example, with the, the Clifton Strength Finder test, my number one value was achiever. 
So every day you start off with a blank slate as if you haven't accomplished anything. And you kind of measure the day by, by how much has been accomplished or produced or whatever. That gave me insight into my personality. So I thought Enneagram was similar to that. And maybe that's how some are using it. And in that regard, it's totally innocent. Shortly after that, a, a discerning pastor contacted me. He said, something's wrong here. This Enneagram thing, something's funny. Do you know anything about it? Right after that, I start getting articles sent to me with people raising concerns that it's been kind of exalted into this biblical, spiritual discipleship tool and that everything is being analyzed based on certain principles as opposed to just using biblical principles. So I'm not an expert on it at all. I haven't delved into it. But others have also raised concerns that it is seeking to get biblical results but not using biblical methods or tools. So that's what's been raised. Like I said, when I looked at it, I looked at it as completely innocent, and the folks that I was talking to were very enthusiastic about the Lord but just thought this was very helpful in analyzing and understanding. But perhaps there is more to it, and that's why some people are really raising concerns and sounding alarms. So if you're a little cautious about it, I would say there could be good reason for it, the way it's being used. And it, it, when it gets exalted to kind of a central place, this is the new method, that always concerns me with anything that we're doing. If anything's just used as a tool, great, but when it becomes a, a central method, that begins to concern me. But like I said, I'm not an expert. All right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Brown. I appreciate your help. Sure thing. Sure thing. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Hawaii. Dylan, welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Hey, I just had a, a quick question. This may be too broad to, to ask on a, on a, a small segment, but um, would, it, would, would it be concerning, you think, um, for the vast majority of church history after the apostles, after the writings of the New Testament, that the collective mind of the church and the understanding of the gospel um, is different than the Reformation understanding, which championed faith alone, from scripture, etc. Is it is it a little um, uh, alarming that uh, for the vast majority of church history, the church had a false gospel, or the or the majority of traceable uh, Christians and their historical documents, none of them which agree with the Reformation. And I'm a Protestant, so I'm asking this for clarification. Could you help me understand this? Yes, so it's it's a very large question. Uh, If we believe that the Reformation was from God and brought about dramatic changes that were necessary in the Church, does that mean that, like, after the New Testament for the next 1,400 years, that the Church was off base? How could that be? So here's where I would differ with part of your question. I would say, number one, that most of the things that the Reformation was fighting against were extremes and traditions that clearly grew over the centuries, many of which would have been completely unknown to the disciples of the apostles and their disciples. That's the first thing. When you look at what the Reformation was pushing against and the practice of indulgences and the corruption that was existing in large parts of the church and the hierarchical structure that had been developed and the church basically being like a political kingdom, uh, it needed dramatic reformation. 
And the original goal was reformation of the current structure as opposed to breaking away from the current structure. The current structure needed to be broken away from in many ways. The second thing is that many of the clearest things that we teach and believe are reinforced in the writings of church fathers uh, through, the, uh, through the early centuries. And you'll even find streams, for example, the Orthodox stream that feeds into Greek and Russian Orthodoxy in many ways has different viewpoints than the Catholic stream. And then you even have other streams that kind of got wiped out by radical Islam. Uh, there's a great book by John Philip Jenkins on the forgotten history of Christianity where you have a thriving church in African parts of the Middle East that basically has no relationship uh, to the Pope or doesn't look to the Pope uh, as, as the central spiritual figure. So you do have these different streams. I know that Catholic apologists or Catholic friends would say, no, no, the Church Fathers completely support uh, Catholicism, and that's why we're Catholic, because this is the true system. I would simply say we ultimately differ you have the Orthodox streams, you have other smaller streams, you have the Catholic streams, Protestant streams, all are claiming authenticity. What do we agree on? We agree on Scripture. And if we agree on Scripture, then that has to be the ultimate test. How does this line up with Scripture? But you will find a remnant that's often protesting some of the errors in what was developing in the larger church. And when you trace that remnant, then you see it's not just like Martin Luther or Jan Hus just came out of the blue, that there were, there were Reformation traditions, there were protest traditions within the church over the centuries. So it was basically a remnant as opposed to the majority. Is that disturbing? Yes, but that's often the way it is through biblical history. The remnant had it right and the majority had it wrong. And for all of us, right. what we have to do is stay low, examine our hearts before the Lord, lest we think we alone have it right. Because basically, whatever our particular group is, if we're really interested into it, we think we're the ones that have it most accurately. And we might on <laughs> points one through three, but someone else might on points four through six, and someone else on seven and eight, and someone else nine and ten. That's why we, we hold to what we hold to dogmatically in terms of the fundamentals, but we honor others where there are other differences. So uh, hey, I, uh, just, yeah, go ahead. I have a follow-up question real quick. Yeah, okay, yeah. Real quick uh, um, so, so I heard someone say uh, on YouTube, uh, they're debating someone, they said, well, if you don't believe in the faith alone gospel, you're a false convert, you never really been saved. So that, that's why I brought about that question. I was like, wait a minute, the vast majority of Church history, none of them held to that uh, precise uh, doctrine. So then that would suggest that the gates of hell prevailed and everyone was a false convert and believed a false gospel, and this is the kind of extreme end of the, of the yeah, Reformation. But, uh, but, but here, here's, here's the response, Dylan. The gates of hell not prevailing doesn't mean that a lot of people will not be lost. It means that ultimately the, the Church will triumph in its, in its mission, and there will be a multitude that, that worships God uh, through Jesus. But you have to remember that just because a formula was not plainly articulated doesn't mean that someone didn't hold to it. In, in other words, someone may know the importance of works. They may know that, that God requires a changed life, but they know that they've received mercy through the cross. So they may not articulate faith alone, but they know that, that they're saved by the mercy of God and, and that good works are important. 
uh, but that they're saved through the mercy of God. So many people through history may have understood it right, even if they didn't articulate it correctly. Hey, Dylan, thanks for the questions. They are important. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Drew in Charlotte, North Carolina. You're on the line of fire. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. You're welcome. So I had a question. Uh, something, something's been a bit on my heart um, and in my mind. Switch off a Bluetooth here. I'm hearing a, hearing a little bit, and it's uh, it's about the throne of God. Yeah. And uh, if you look at if you look at uh, chapter 21 at the very end, and then the beginning of chapter 22. It says uh, in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. All right, so that, that's like the first, the first part. And then if you go to 22, the beginning, it says, the angel, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And, and I know Jesus is referred to in... Um, in uh, Colossians one, right as the as the image of the invisible God, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the firstborn for all creation. So I guess the question that I have is like, how does it work? Like it's saying that this river is coming from the throne. So like, is there just one throne and Jesus is sitting on it? Um, you know, I I believe in the Trinity, but sometimes when I read certain passages, especially in Revelation, I'm like, like what what is going on here? Yeah. So so who sits on the throne of God in heaven? The Father, the Father and the Son, the Son. Who sits on the throne of God in heaven? We'll answer that when we come back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on the line of fire. So Drew's question, who sits on the throne of God in heaven? First, throughout Scripture, the Father is pictured sitting on the throne, and Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. That's a consistent picture that we have. It is Jesus, Yeshua, the Son of God, who makes the Father known. The Father is hidden in his glory and splendor. But the Father sits on the throne in New Testament accounts, okay? And if you look in the book of Revelation, you'll see, for example, the fifth chapter, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then the Lamb seems to have a throne which is next to the throne of God. But then when you get to Revelation 22, it speaks of one throne of God and the Lamb, and his servants will serve him and see his face in Revelation, Revelation 22, which points back to 1 Corinthians 15, that the Son will submit himself to the Father, that God may be all in all, so that you may well see the Father and Son as one sitting on the throne. Uh, it's not like they're sharing the throne sitting next to each other, but this is God's way of reminding us, because this is all visionary, that there's one God, that God ultimately is one God, not three separate gods, one God, complex in his unity, one God who is a triunity. 
But go through all of Revelation, all right, and you'll see consistently you have the throne of God and and then you have the Lamb, or the Lamb is in the center of the throne or next to the throne, then ultimately the Lamb and the one sitting on the throne become one. Now you could argue it's Yeshua who makes the Father known, and he's the one sitting on the throne, but it seems better to say, no, it's the Father who sits on the throne, and the Son and Father reign together as one. But, but go through Revelation, look for every reference to that. You'll find a few, and you'll find it morphs and changes until we get to Revelation chapter 22. And part of this, remember, is, is God's nature transcends our understanding. So when we say God always existed intellectually, I know that's true. It has to be true because something had to create everything else, and yet my mind can't go there. Eternity passed, my mind short circuits, but I know it's true. Hey, thank you for calling. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Israel in Michigan. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I have a question because uh, I've been listening to uh, many people that uh, claim to have a prophecy, and half of them is going to be wrong for sure <laughs> this coming election. And um, I just wonder if you uh, consider somebody today a true prophet. Yeah, there are. Bear in mind that I believe. That, that the gift of prophecy continues to this day, that any New Testament believer full of the Spirit can potentially prophesy, and that just like some people are called to be pastors and teachers, others are called to be prophets. And it doesn't mean that they're writing Scripture. It doesn't mean that, that you go to them and say, what should I do? I don't know if I should take this job or that job. And they say, thus saith the Lord, take this job. Because we all have right. a relationship with God directly, and then we have the Scriptures. But there are prophets today. Uh, I, I absolutely believe there are. Uh, I, I would prefer not to say, I believe this one is a prophet, that one is a prophet, um, because the moment you do, then people think, are you verifying every one of their words? Have you heard everything they said? Have you read every one of their... So yeah. uh, I'm not yeah. saying that, but um, I absolutely believe there are prophets today. And I also believe in the charismatic movement, of which I am a part, that there's a tremendous lack oh, yeah, of me, accountability. Me, me yeah, I, I believe yeah, there's a I, tremendous, I, I know. a tremendous lack yeah. of accountability. Uh, in, yeah, in other words, I, I that we're, we're too loose with things. Today. Right, we're we're oh, too loose with things. We we don't we don't hold people accountable. That there were numerous words about you know the virus and the virus is going to diminish come April and well it hasn't happened. Those words yeah. were not accurate. And, you know, I waited a little while more to see how things played out, et cetera, you know, or you're going to hear about a vaccine. Well, that hasn't happened within the time frame. So those were inaccurate. But I don't believe we're supposed to be sitting around primarily asking prophets, what do you see for the future? And, you know, it's as, as God wants things spoken, he reveals it, he speaks it. But I, I absolutely do believe there are prophetic people uh, on the earth today functioning as prophets, being used to wake up, to stir, to warn to give comfort, and at, and at key times to tell us what's coming so that we know how to live today. In other words, God has no desire to give us abstract information about the future. You know, uh, 11 yeah. days from now, this sports team will win a game by three points, it's, or the weather <laughs> in Toledo, Ohio will be this, unless it was to verify something, uh, to demonstrate something. But otherwise, God tells us about things to come 
so we know how to pray and act and live today. But Israel, if you yeah. have a question about a specific individual and, and you want our take on that, feel free to write to us through our website. I just try to be careful on the air. Just like if someone says, can I recommend a church in your area? I really can't do that for, for quite a few reasons. I mean, unless you happen to be an old friend and you're moving to a new city. It's like, oh, yeah, my buddy is a pastor there. But um, we, <laughs> we want to be judged for what we say and what we believe. And held account. I want you to hold me accountable for what I say and what I believe. I minister with lots of different people in the body, wide range of people from different perspectives. And some I, I love and respect and honor deeply. Some I, I know they're brothers in the Lord. will work together for certain purposes, but we're not as deeply connected. So I want to be held accountable for what I say, not for what someone says, a friend or a colleague says. Hence, uh, some of my speech today. But we need much more accountability as well as recognition of the validity of the gift. Thank you. Thank you for calling. By the way, as, as for President Trump, I don't know what's going to happen in, in, in November. I know I wrote a book that's an important book that will help us sort out what's right and what's wrong with President Trump and how we can unite around Jesus even if we have differences and how we can put the cross before the flag and how if we believe Trump is the right man, we can vote for him without losing our testimony. So I've dealt with that in, in, in my book, Evangelicals at the Crossroads as to what's actually going to happen and which prophetic words were accurate. Well, some you could say are 50-50, but if someone were detailed and even went back to before Trump was even running for office, those I would take more seriously. Uh, and I get into that in my book, too. I evaluate some of those prophetic words. Okay, let us go to John in New York. Thanks for joining us on the Line of Fire. Uh, how's it going? Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I have a, a quick question. Um, it's, it's about um, speaking in tongues. Uh, yes. I wanted to find out, um, can every belie- does every believer can speak in tongues? Oh, because I want to, um, in my prayer time, I'll be more intimate with God. And I was wondering, I guess I'm, maybe I'm reading this wrong when I read Second Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians 12, and yeah. about saying, uh, "Do all." Do we all speak in tongues? Do we all interpret and so on? And Correct. Is that a certain gift that only certain Christians get? Or Right. So to... is, is tongues a gift potentially for all believers, or is it something specifically given just to some, as 1 Corinthians 12 would seem to indicate? Uh, you can make an argument that it's only for some, that, that Paul says some speak in tongues, some interpret, some prophesy, some have gifts of healing— and I believe all those things are, are for today ongoing. We can make a good biblical case for that. However, many would argue that when believers were filled with the Spirit in Acts 2 and Acts 10 and Acts 19, and apparently in Acts 8, we know something happened there, that there was an outward expression and they spoke in tongues, that this seemed to be the universal sign. So Pentecostals have believed that the baptism of the Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit, is for all believers. It is something subsequent to our salvation where we receive supernatural empowerment for the mission, and the outward sign of it is speaking in tongues. You say, well, what about 1 Corinthians 12? They would differentiate between speaking in tongues in your own prayer life, in your intimacy with God, versus delivering public messages in tongues. So, 
in <laughs> that score, I have been speaking in tongues since January 24th of 1972 and have spent countless thousands of hours praying in tongues and intimate communion with God, but I've never delivered a public message in tongues. Oh, actually, one time, one time in my life. Um, mm -hmm. So you would say that God has not anointed me to do that. What I would encourage you to do is not make it as much theological as much as personal and say, God, it says in your word that if we ask for a good thing from you, that you won't withhold it. And, and you say oh. in your word that as we pray in tongues, we edify ourselves and we speak mysteries in the spirit to God. And Paul even said to the Corinthians, I, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. And then he also said, he also said this, he, he said, don't forbid it. Don't forbid people speaking in tongues. So I would, I would say, Father, give me everything you have so that I can be as close to you as possible and walk in the fullness of your power and spirit so I can be the best witness I can to a dying world. And I know for me, as I commune with God, praying in tongues, and my mind is meditating and worshiping him, that it strengthens me so that I can now go out and serve the world better, serve the church better. And it also brings me into a deeper place of intimacy and communion with God. So I would say, Father, I want everything you have for me so I can know you the best and serve you the best and glorify you the best. And if I were you, I would believe that he's going to empower you with the Spirit and that you will find yourself speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, and intimacy with God. Praise him regardless of what he does. Hey, friends, out of time. Join us again on Monday. Visit us at AskDrBrown.org over the weekend.